will you will you will you play that um doofy music first no i want us to have us say our names and then play the doofy music and then we'll get into the movies directed by john cassavetes i need i need i need it you need it beforehand yeah all right fine we'll play it first good psych up music it reminds me i don't know if you recognize that gesture that i was doing but it's from gone in 60 seconds when nicholas cage is listening to lowrider does that like little let's that's go right. thing that's yeah, what i was yeah, doing yeah, while yeah. listening to that this is love streams the john cassavetes podcast where we will be talking about the films directed by american film director john cassavetes welcome to the first episode i'm john I'm Allison. We're the hosts. We're the hosts, and we're here to talk about the films of John Cassavetes. I am a film and media studies academic by training and a movie enthusiast. I'm a filmmaker, also movie enthusiast. We're also married to each other. Hopefully that's not too much of a turnoff for anyone who's listening right now. I realize that anytime married couples do anything, it's kind of punchable. It's obnoxious, but as the podcast goes along, I think, I think it'll pay off. I think it will pay off. I think that it is relevant to have a married couple talk about the films of John Cassavetes because so much of his work is about not just marriage, but just the whole idea of intimacy in general and your ability to know another person and how people perform for each other, not just in public spaces, but also in your most intimate spaces uh, as well. It's a really sexual like a euphemism in the most intimate spaces. But what I mean is, you know, People think about how when you're out in the world, you're pretending and then you come home and you're yourself with your friends and the people who know you best, but not necessarily. That's the... when you pretend the most. Exactly. In the John Cassavetes diegetic universe, uh, pretending is everywhere, even in the intimate realm. That's right. Uh, so I don't know. Hopefully, uh, maybe we'll have unique insight based on our the fact we're married, although we haven't been married for too long. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. That's kind of the gambit here is uh, get get people who are married together. These films are about families a lot of the time. They're about marriages some of the time. They're about interpersonal communications and miscommunications all the time. Hearing you say that they're about marriages and families, I just had a sudden like something from the wonderful world of Disney flashed through my mind. One of those like wholesome family movies for a Sunday night. Uh, the ABC Ca- Sunday night movie. John exactly. Cassavetes. <laughs> okay, if that did happen, if some, if the ABC Sunday night movie played a Cassavetes film, someone would get fired. Like that would ABC would be canceled. Maybe there would just be a whole hullabaloo. All that's just to say, if you're worried that this is going to be a podcast about wholesome feel good films, don't worry. <laughs> ABC always bout Cassavetes. That's our motto. <laughs> that's why we got married, John. Before we got married, we were talking about whether or not we should have a prenup. And then we decided not to because neither one of us has any money. We were like, oh, we should sign a legally binding document that says we have to finish the Cassavetes cast no matter what, even if we get a divorce. So that's right. We're in it to win it. Listenership. Yeah. If we get separated later on in the podcast, it's not fake. It'll be it'll be the real deal. Although you won't know. You won't know when the performance begins and ends again. Similar. I think we're getting too deep here. Yeah, we we need to back it up. We need to we we need to back it up a little bit. Let, let, Let me let me help us out here. Uh, so John Cassavetes is an American film director 
Uh, he was born, what, in the 1920s? 1929. 1929. In he died in 1989. Correct. I uh, want to say he died relatively young. He was 59. He was 59. Uh, he died of cirrhosis, which we will get into. Uh, and in between that time, he made a dozen feature films between 1959 and 1986. And we're going to talk about all of them on the podcast. That's the, right. Each the, episode, one film. We're going to dig into it. And uh, and one episode will have three films. One episode will have three films? What yeah, is that? all the studio films. That's right. His brief studio films. Uh, it's worth noting. So he directed 12 films between 1959 and 1986. Part of how John Cassavetes got into this is he... Uh, started acting, started having some success with TV roles, and then, uh, you know, decided to start his own acting workshop. And the way that it's described in biographies is that he was frustrated with how uh, television production worked, that it didn't give you enough, uh, you know, freedom as an artist, as an actor to really dig into things. And so that's why he started this workshop. Out of the workshop came his first feature, uh, Shadows, in 1959. Um, and as we'll talk about, John Cassavetes has a very, had a very distinct approach to making films, writing films, the way that he edited and did distribution. Because of this, he has come to be known as uh, the father of American independent cinema. If people know him as a director, they often know him you know, by that description. Although he was, uh, you know, a very successful, not very successful. He did Hollywood acting as well. He was a moderately successful Hollywood actor. Yeah, when I mention him to people, and I'm like, oh, we're doing a podcast about the films directed by John Cassavetes, people either respond by saying, who is that? Or they'll say, oh, isn't that the guy from Rosemary's Baby and the Dirty Dozen? And that's right. He is the evil husband in Rosemary's Baby. He's in the Dirty Dozen. Uh, he's in some other bigger Hollywood films and like, but usually in more minor roles. Yeah, he did a lot of acting in the 60s and in the 70s, um, minor productions, you know, some studio work, television work. He was on an episode of Columbo, for instance. Absolutely. Great uh, episode. Great episode of great Columbo. Great episode. Fantastic episode of Columbo. Very good. But a lot of people, I think, know him from that. Or maybe if you're kind of an actor person, which is to say you are an actor or you just are interested <laughs> in acting, I think Mikey and Nikki. Uh, gets yeah. a lot of press for being a ca a film in which Cassavetes appears and directed and does some by work. Elaine May. Directed by Elaine May. We'll talk about Mikey and Nikki a little bit more mm -hmm. in this episode. One a little last, bit later on. One last data point, just to mention, when we talk about John Cassavetes being an actor and also the father of American independent cinema, uh, a lot of his more mainstream Hollywood acting roles, he used that money to finance his own films. Uh, when he was directing, he was in many cases, self-funding or getting his friends like Peter Falk, who would be in the films to also help finance. Um, or he would like refinance his house and use that to uh, pay for the production. Or rather, let me rephrase that. It's not that he would refinance his house to pay for his films. He would take out a second mortgage on his house and use that to pay for the production of the film. Uh, very different from refinancing and using that new low, low interest rate to pay for your film. So he was truly outside the mainstream studio system, not just in his stylistics and his aesthetics, but in the way he was like getting stuff done. That's right. An independent filmmaker in the sense of style and storytelling and narrative form, but also importantly, financially. You know, these were not studio backed films. They were independently financed, independently produced, independently distributed. In yeah. Many Cass cases Buddies also. did in many cases 
maybe every case, a lot of distribution legwork of like, I'm going to contact into like actual theaters and be like, hey, will you show this film? Like he was doing it. He was hustling at pretty much every turn. That's right. So Cassavetes is an independent filmmaker. But uh, beyond that, why this particular filmmaker? Like there are a lot of movie podcasts out there, right? We talked about Hitchcock a little bit, you know, various Hitchcock podcasts or this and that. Why Cassavetes in particular? And I want to ask you, Allison, why do you want to talk about Cassavetes for 20 hours of your life? Part of it is that I think I've already spent 20 hours of my life, at least, talking about Cassavetes. Like the, the cumulative total of the amount of time that I've spent talking about him, you know, might as well turn it into a podcast for one thing. I think it makes me really sad when I mention him to people and they don't know about the things that he directed. Because uh, I think his work is so, just makes me feel so many things. It is very, the, the, the style of it is strange. The editing is strange. The way it's shot is strange. The performances are completely unforgettable. And the types of characters that are in a Cassavetes film are unforgettable. And to me, they just, all I can say is I saw a few Cassavetes films in college. And I could appreciate that they were different because the pacing was so different from any movie I'd ever seen. And the acting was incredible and they and the use of time was really different too. the way that the scenes were structured, how long they were, all that. But I didn't really feel a connection to them. I didn't feel like I really like got them. It wasn't until maybe like eight to ten years went by, watched them again and really felt a stronger connection to them. And I think that's in part because a Cassavetes film is not for children not because there's a lot of gratuitous sex and violence, because actually there's not a ton of gratuitous sex and violence, but because there are movies about being an adult, being a failure. What, what does it mean to be successful in many cases? Um, and he's a very, I think, in his own way, a very influential filmmaker. Like nobody makes movies that look like a Cassavetes film. However, his film has had an impact on so many more mainstream directors, and it's really interesting to kind of trace that relationship like it's fun to watch a steven spielberg movie and be like oh this main character this is a cassavetes character in these particular ways um even though at you know at first glance you wouldn't think there's anything stylistically in common with you know between spielberg who's like a big hollywood mainstream success and cassavetes who's just like out there doing weird stuff the anti-spielberg <laughs> the anti-spielberg although he is famously on record as saying that he liked et yeah oh yeah definitely uh, because he thought it was a film about real, real emotions. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's true. Yeah. How about you, John? Why do you want to talk about John Cassavetes? Well, I mean, for some similar reasons, I think I had not seen a Cassavetes film until I was probably halfway through graduate school in film studies. Um, and so... Part of my motivation, and I should say it blew me away. Like I was I was astonished by it was Killing of a Chinese Bookie, in fact, the movie we're gonna talk about today. And I, I was didn't astonished. realize that. I didn't know that was your first. Yeah. Like, wow. Um, and so I think because Cassavetes is such a unique and influential filmmaker, it is odd to me that he is kind of in some ways outside the canon. I mean, people will pay lip service. Yeah, Woman Under the Influence, great movie, but but Cassavetes as a director and as a filmmaker, I think is one of the most important American filmmakers and just doesn't get talked about very much. Um, I think he is, and I'll, I'll kind of go on the record here. I think Scorsese's equal as an American filmmaker, as a, 
as a prober of American society, prober. <laughs> you uh, can tell by the look on my face. I really wanted to laugh the word prober, but go on. You know, as a, as a filmmaker exploring American society and the contradictions of American society, as a filmmaker exploring masculinity and what that's oh. supposed to mean in American society. I feel like in this day and age where there's more conversation about toxic masculinity, Cassavetes is especially relevant. I feel like so many of his his male characters are like doing a lot of toxic masculinity, childish, performative little boy BS. And it's uh, it's a great body of work to unpack just for that reason alone. If you like care about nothing else and you want to talk about like what are toxic masculinity movies like watch watch a Cassavetes film. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and uh, and in fascinating ways, too. You know, it's not just that the characters are are behaving badly but the ways they do it and the reasons why they do it are are something that Cassavetes I think is really interested in and devoted his career to exploring so I guess in a sense it's about recognition you know I want Cassavetes to get more recognition in another sense I think these movies and we should just say this like at the outset right these are not easy movies to watch um, they are not friendly they are not family movies, as you were saying. Heck no. But also, they're stylistically and and in narrative terms, they are they are not approachable films. They are not necessarily. It's not like you watch a movie and you're like, oh, I get it. I'm done. I'm done thinking about this film. It all makes sense. I've totally figured it out. Uh, if anything, the opposite might happen. You are completely baffled, and you maybe watch one film and you never want to watch another. But, um. I think it is very true that the more Cassavetes films you watch, the more each individual one makes sense. I think he does have his own kind of uh, his own way of doing things, his own language uh, and his own kind of behaviors and stylistic elements that he gravitates toward. So that the more you see, the more you're like, oh, OK, I get it. I speak this language now and now I can watch another movie and it'll make a little more sense than if I just watched one and was like, oh, well. Uh. Yeah, I think this happens frequently, um, or I would guess, right, that this happens frequently, that people get recommended, oh, Cassavetes, you know, I've heard such great things, and they maybe watch one movie, right? Watch A Woman Under the Influence, or watch uh, Husbands, or watch Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and it is so unpleasant that they're going to lie to their friends and say, yeah, I really thought it, you know, thought provoking, lots of ideas there and just fucking hate it. Right. Uh, and never watch another one again. And so part of, I think the mission for a podcast like this is to take the time to unpack these movies individually and also together and to try and make the case for Cassavetes as a filmmaker, you should know as a filmmaker, you should know about as a filmmaker, you should care about. I guess that means we're kind of assuming that you dear listener, care about movies in some way, shape, or form. And I kind of guess I hope that's true. Yeah. Uh, but I think Cassavetes is an important filmmaker. Um, yeah. And there's this great line from Al Rubin, who is Cassavetes' producer and kind of money man. And um, also, I think he did, like, camera work, too. On that's He right. was sort of like an all-around Cassavetes collaborator in many respects. Longtime Cassavetes collaborator and friend. Yeah, over most of his entire career, right? Yeah. Um, and he, he, this was in an interview that he gave. He said that um, he thinks, uh, I'll just quote him directly here. I think most people take to Cassavetes' work, but they have to be indoctrinated. That's what I've found. 
Uh, and he goes on to talk about in this interview how if you watch just one movie every six months or so, it doesn't take. He thinks that audiences, they enjoy being entertained and titillated by movies, and Cassavetti's films don't really do that. They require you as a viewer to be involved, emotionally involved and intellectually involved in what's going on. You can't just like sit back and relax and let the movie kind of pass by you. And so Ruben's yeah. idea is that, you know, if you watch like one a week, uh, and you watch them intently and you pay attention, then really you start to understand exactly what you were saying, Allison, that Cassavetes really has his own unique grammar of cinema, his own kind of theory of filmmaking and theory of art, and that you can really appreciate that if you take the time and, and commit the investment to, to indoctrinating yourself, as, as he puts it. And of course, you know, he's the money man. He wants people to be indoctrinated into Cassavetes. But I think you also don't spend, what, 30 years or something working on these movies that don't make any money and, and are just pain in the ass movies to make if you don't care about it yeah. at some deep level. I think that's right. Uh, one more thing I wanted to add, just um, along the lines of people not knowing Cassavetes as a director, uh, I would say that, you know, Cassavetes maybe doesn't get talked about a whole lot in the world of maybe pop culture cinema conversations, but even in the world of film studies, there isn't as much discussion of him. There's uh, and we'll dig into that at some point, but uh, for certain reasons, there's kind of a sense that like, oh, John Cassavetti's work isn't really relevant to film studies because of his, he had certain ways of doing things. And like, there's no film studies discussion to be had. There's no academic discussion to be had about how, the, the film grammar of a Cassavetes film. And we disagree with that as well. So in addition to talking about how maybe audiences can converse about Cassavetes, there's also something said about how the, the discipline of film studies is relevant to Cassavetes as well. But we'll, we'll get to that. We will get into it. Uh, so uh, we should, I think, just explain what we're going to be doing. Uh, like, I think we mentioned this already. Every episode, we're going to cover a film. For, there's one episode we're planning to do where we're going to take all of Cassavetes' studio work together. He did do some movies for the studios for early in his career and then later in his career when he was desperate for money. And we'll talk about that. Um, we'll kind of bundle those all together. Frankly, I think those movies are just not interesting enough to hold an episode all on their own. They're kind of compromised in various ways. And we'll talk about that. Um, so we'll give you also some background information about the production of each movie and the reception of each movie, in addition to kind of talking through the movies themselves. And we really do invite you to watch along with the podcast. Each episode, we'll let you know when in the podcast, if you want to stop and go watch the movie, uh, you can do that. Of course, if you've seen them all already, then you're, you're good to go. Uh, if you haven't seen them at all and you just don't want to, that's fine too, I guess. Yeah. Do what you want. It's Do what your you life. want. It's, it's your life. Look, you're the one listening to it. Yeah. Do what you want. Pause it. Stop it. Rewind it. It's you have the power. That's right. So why here? Why are we starting with the killing of a Chinese bookie? Because this is definitely not Cassavetti's first film. This is smack dab in the center of his directing career. Why start here, John? Oh, put me on the spot a little bit. A little I, bit? In fairness, this was something that I pushed for. I advocated for this. That's correct. Um, I want to start here and one, not do it chronologically. I think doing it chronologically doesn't help you get into the core, the, the kind of the inside of Cassavetes in a way that 
is useful for understanding how all of the films relate to each other. You can kind of see his development as a filmmaker over time, and that's sort of helpful. But I think it's easier to kind of start in the middle and work your way out with someone like Cassavetes than start at the beginning and work your way to the end. And partly, I think, this is because there's such a remarkable consistency across his films in terms of what his artistic project is that you, you really don't have to start just at the very beginning in order to start to understand what's going on. Another reason is that Killing of a Chinese Bookie might be his most accessible film. It's interesting because there are ways in which it's the most accessible film and also the least accessible film because it, on the one, let's say it's accessible because uh, unlike so many of Cassavetti's films, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie is drawing on a lot of genre conventions. It is a genre film drawing on a lot of film noir, a lot of like the gangster film genre. So there are elements that are very recognizable, whereas a lot of other Cassavetes films are these like strange family dramas that just feel so, I don't know, differently shaped that they're hard to recognize. So we've got some genre things here, which is kind of a good draw. However, this is less accessible because it has all these recognizable genre conventions that it just totally breaks. You come in being like, is this a noir movie? And then you're like, oh, wait, never mind. This is unlike any noir movie I've ever seen to the point where we made it's not a noir anymore. It pissed people off. It pissed people off. Yeah. Another good reason that we have for starting with Killing of a Chinese Bookie is because this film, which is in the center of his directing career, is also really a turning point for him. Up until this point, he was making, you know, he was always making low budget films, but they were even lower budget early on, uh, self-funded. And he was always making movies with his family, with his wife, the actor Jenna Rollins, as well as other family members and friends as well. Um, And his work just didn't have a whole lot of commercial traction. He really wasn't being taken as seriously early on. And this is also in part two because he did some studio work early in his career and those films really did not do well. Uh, and he burned some bridges. He burned some bridges, yeah. But in 1974, A Woman Under the Influence, incredible film, uh, he got a lot more credit. He got a couple of Academy Award nominations for that film. And it really started to seem like, okay, is John Cassavetes hitting his stride? Is he going to be more than just like a low budget weirdo filming his acting exercises and then putting them in theaters? Like people are really starting to take him, I think, a bit more seriously. And so with this next film, I think there was some effort on his part to really turn this momentum into like a bigger Hollywood breakthrough. There's a quote in the Marshall Fine biography, Accidental Genius, where Caspetti's is saying, After Woman Under the Influence, I'm so tired. Like, they should kill directors after age 30. I'm just so tired. Um, And I think he was tired because it's a lot of work to finance your own film, direct it, and also doing all of the distribution legwork as well. Um, Where is the quote where he's saying how he wanted this to be mainstream? Is that in? That is in Cassavetes on Cassavetes. Gotcha. Um, He talks about, um, it's Ray Carney who's talking about Cassavetes there, talking about how... Cassavetes was aiming to kind of parlay his critical success with Woman Under the Influence into broader commercial appeal. And I know we've, we've talked about Cassavetes as a, as a ruggedly independent filmmaker, right, who bucked the system and did things his own way. It's also important to underscore that Cassavetes was pretty much always broke, right? He was financing his own films and shooting lots and lots of film. I mean, these movies were cheap, but he was pushing himself and his family 
to the limits of their creditworthiness to make these yeah. movies. And so the opportunity to rake in a little bit of dough, have a little bit of a cushion, like be be a little bit more stable financially and be able to make the kinds of films he wanted to make going forward seems to have been uh, um, appealing to him at this period in time. So Killing of a Chinese Bookie is, I think, his attempt to translate that, that um, critical reaction into somewhat of a more commercial appeal. And th- you know, this is also the 1970s, right? This is the era of Godfathers and Raging Bulls and uh, other films that are pushing the envelope in terms of what Hollywood cinema can look like while also being commercially successful films. And I think I, my intuition is that Cassavetes recognized that and thought maybe there's an opportunity for him to ride that wave as well a little bit. It's got a great cast. Uh, ben Gazzara and Seymour Cassell, who are in other Cassavetes films. Uh, they are in more of the starring roles in this one. Also, some minor characters played by other Cassavetes uh, usual associates. Usual suspects, yeah. Val Avery, Al Rubin, again, the longtime collaborator we were mentioning before. Also uh, starring Timothy Carey from Kubrick's The Killing and Paths of Glory, among others. You know what's really great, John? <laughs> if you do a search on Google for like the cast of Killing of a Chinese Bookie, um, and then you click so that you see the entire cast, I think someone got confused because this actor is Tim Carey, who's in this, and the very bottom of this list. Please of, tell me it's Tim Curry. It says Tim Curry. <laughs> so someone put it in. <laughs> if you look at the entire like list of pictures, like who's in this film, at the very bottom is Tim Curry. I'm like, nope, Tim Curry is not in this film. It is Tim Carey. Different guy. That's a different guy. That's a, a way different guy. Way different they guy. They're not remotely similar. That's also really funny, though, and I'm really grateful to the internet for making that mistake. Thank now I'm you, thinking internet. about Tim Carey in Home Alone uh, being angry at Kevin McAllister, but being like menacing and truly frightening, like he's going to murder Kevin McAllister. That's a fun tidbit. That's what you, what you go to the podcast for. That's right. What do you think people should know before they watch this movie? What's your word of advice? It's worth noting that this is drawing on different genres, but know going into it that Cassavetes is breaking rules and he's doing it on purpose. I would say maybe maybe a big mistake you could make is to watch this and be like, wow, this guy doesn't know how film noir works. He knows how it works. He's Yeah, or how filmmaking works. Yeah. Or how editing works. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at some of this film, especially maybe some of the lighting, and be like, what is this guy doing? This guy is inept. But I can assure you that the more of his films you watch, the clearer it becomes that he is not inept and that he is making these choices on purpose and not just because he's a total idiot. I don't think he's inept. No, I do not it's think a choice. he's inept. He, it's, a, it's, it's a set of choices. It is definitely a choice. And also it's worth noting, too, that when Cassavetes shot a movie, he shot a lot of film. And he is, has a reputation, too, of um, remaking his movies. Like he, his first film, Shadows, he made it. Didn't like it. Totally reshot it. Redid it. Um, Movie Husbands, he had a cut of it that people liked, and then he recut it, and then it was completely different. So Cassavetes was very particular. He had a vision, like all directors. He wanted his work to be a particular way. And if he had felt like, oh, this footage is bad, or I don't want this footage, he would have just reshot it, or he would have used different footage. So all this is just to say, the strange lighting, the strange acting... Uh, it's there on purpose. It's a decision, not a mistake. What about you, John? What do you think people should know? Here's, here's what I think. When you watch 2001 A Space Odyssey, you have to let that movie unfold in its own time. 
it takes its own sweet time getting to where it's going. And you're kind of along for the ride. You're along for a majestic space journey when you watch that film. And you just kind of have to give yourself over to it in terms of the pacing of it and the flow of it and how everything kind of ultimately fits together in that film. And I think I would recommend a similar kind of approach to Cassavetes, that you, you this is kind of a slow paced movie. It's not always clear what the scenes necessarily have to do with each other or with what the plot is that you're waiting for. Uh, and I think the way to go about it is to just accept that you're going to watch, you know, two and a half hours of movie and to just give the movie its time to unfold in the way that it does, to let it play out in the way that it does, and to just have the experience. Don't try and game the experience by thinking, you know, ah, okay, um, you know, uh, uh, I wonder what's going to happen here. I wonder what's going to happen here. This is going to relate to that. And what's going to happen then? That those are traditional ways of watching a movie. I think where you're you're watching it for the plot. Um, watch the movie for the movie. Well put. Yeah, maybe a simpler way to put it is: uh, don't analyze the movie until it's done. Let it happen. Yeah, and then think about it. If you're if you're trying to figure it out the whole Speaking time, about toxic masculinity. Just let it happen. Oh yeah, geez. Uh, maybe I'm just cut that part out. I'll just just say yeah. I like what you're saying though about let the movie unfold on its own terms. And uh, if you try to figure it out, you're just going to have a negative experience so just watch it and then think about it one last thing i would recommend watching the 1976 version there are two versions of this movie the 1978 version is shorter it's arguably a little bit more concise but i think the 76 version is paced a little bit better and i think it gives you kind of a bigger better overall picture of what the movie is about and if you're gonna watch one you're 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 listening to a john cassavetti's podcast for god's sake uh, just watch the longer one. Yeah, that's worth noting. When I went on that diatribe earlier about how Cassavetes would have just recut it if he wanted to, he did recut it into the 1978 version. However, they are not too terribly different. And it also might be that he recut that one to see if it could gain more commercial traction, which it didn't. So I don't know if that necessarily... I don't think the 1978 version is like a, a purer version of a director's vision. I think it was him trying to like get this movie to have any type of success. Yeah, I think he was trying to rescue a sinking ship and failed. Yeah. Um, they are a little different. I guess I agree with you about the 1976 version. If you're going to watch one, watch that one. There are little reasons why I kind of like the 78 version a little bit better, but we can get into that more later. If you're going to watch one, watch the 76. Or better yet, just don't go to work today and watch both. And we'll talk about both versions. So whichever one you watch, we'll give you the information you need. This is the official moment when you should stop listening and you should watch the movie. We need movie. a bell. A when bell? you hear the sound of the bell, get up out of your chair and watch a Cassavetes film. Bing! Perfect. I bet you have a sound effect for it. Let's see. FX large robot? Large robot. Oh, let's, let's try. What about small robot? This is when you should stop the podcast and go watch the movie. Watch it now. All right. Sorry, listeners. I'm sure I just alienated most of you by playing around with the soundboard. Almost just to say we don't have a bell, but you should go watch the movie now. And if you choose to keep listening, just know that there will be spoilers and synopsis. And if you don't come back for the rest of it, it was nice knowing you.